We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. The art fair has been a great outreach opportunity, and I think we've been doing it since uh, 2014. Uh, is that right? Or <laughs> um, yes, and uh, um, isn't it like 300,000 people come or something? And yeah, so as high as 500,000. And uh, even if uh, only a smaller percentage of that actually walks by our booth, that's a lot of people who even if they don't stop, they might see or ask me about Jesus' sign or something. Um, so um, uh, the, the art fair, it, it, um, the, so if you're not familiar, there's a Washington nonprofit section of the art fair um, and uh, any nonprofit that's uh, in Washtenaw can uh, ha- um, join and have a booth there. Um, and uh, so uh, there's uh, some just uh, like some organizations like um, uh, U of M Respiratory Care, and then there's the, all sorts of religious groups and. Uh, this time there was three Catholic groups, if I recall correctly, and two Muslim groups and um, some kind of Buddhist group. And um, so this is a, a lot like uh, uh, the market that the Apostle Paul went to and preached at in Acts 17. Uh, so it's been a wonderful opportunity Um and uh, um, you see a lot of lostness there besides the boost, just the crowds walking by. Uh, every year it gets worse, uh, women wearing less and less clothing, and uh, the whole transgender thing is, has been at least twice as bad this year with people walking by who obviously have had surgeries and uh, and drugs to damage their body. It's, it's tragic. So, and uh, we're sometimes uh, downwind from the local marijuana shop and could smell it. <laughs> so we're, we're right in the midst of a lost world there and, and uh, where we need to be to be sharing the gospel. Uh, and every year, um, it's similar to situation with VBS. It's like, you know, are we going to have enough people and resources, or how? Uh, you know, how are we going to plan this all out? And it all fell in place once again, and we saw gaps where other organizations weren't there. The, their spot was empty because their whatever fell through, and they weren't able to be there. I thank the Lord that since 2014. <laughs> 
he's enabled us to be there. Um, uh, we, uh, this year we have a double booth, um, and half of it, only half of it had a table, so it was very nice because we could talk to people more closely without having the obstacle of the table in the way, um, and uh, even uh, invite people into the side without the table if they wanted to sit down and enjoy some cold water or something, or just talk. Um, and uh, uh, as far as numbers go, uh, I'm terrible with the numbers, and I've gotten worse because trying to keep track just uh, makes it hard to focus on the ministry. But uh, I, I think we gave out uh, close to 400 tracks, and uh, we probably gave out uh, um, 25 or so uh, four gospel books and plus uh, I don't know how many whole Bible ESVs that uh, George had on hand <laughs> um, and uh, we had a number of excellent conversations where um, of course the uh, Lord only knows but we seem to make progress in and drawing people to the Lord in those conversations and so that I, I tell people just one of those conversations in my mind makes the whole art fair effort worth it. But, uh, um, you know, and uh, every time someone approaches the booth, uh, by the way, I hope I'm not uh, going over any time limit or anything, <laughs> but uh, um, uh, Jesus said, if they hate me, they will hate you. You know, we live in a, wor a world very antagonistic against the Bible. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a miracle of God when each person who came stopped at the booth. Uh, and so I thank the Lord for that. Um, uh, so uh, we had a, a few opportunities for different um approaches to sharing the gospel uh, one was uh, we have strove, strove to give out unlimited free water and uh, even uh, yesterday was particularly hot and we had trouble keeping up uh, people were just grabbing waters left and right uh, and uh, many of those people were taking tracks um, uh, so that was uh, wonderful, um, but it was an opportunity to say, hey, there's a even more important kind of water, uh, not the H2O, but the living water that Jesus gives. And um, uh, um, some of the other things, uh, you know, the whole ask me about Jesus theme. Um, and I, I had one lady uh, come up to me and uh, Say, so, yeah, see your sign. Ask me about Jesus. Tell me about Jesus. And uh, I don't have a lot of time, but maybe you can give me a summary or something. And so, um, uh, another opportunity uh, I had uh, was uh, just the whole idea of art, um, and uh, give you know with uh, human artists, uh, um, they are owed some 
respect or glory, so to speak, if they are great artists, right? You you don't say, psst, my two-year-old could have painted that. No, if it's uh, Michelangelo or whatever, you say, that that is skill. Uh, well, we look at the art that God created in his creation. How dare us say, oh, that's just the work of dumb, stupid, random accidents. You know, we, we ought to give glory to whom glory is due and um, so that was an analogy I had the opportunity to make, and um, uh, I'm trying to think. There was uh, so many different uh, conversations we had. Uh, we had, uh, given the big Catholic presence, uh, we had a number of very good conversations with Catholics, and uh, they are getting more evangelical and getting better at disguising their false gospel. So they will actually agree with you if you read uh, Ephesians 2, I mean, uh, yeah, 2, 8 through 10. Uh, Salvation is by grace through faith, and not of works, lest any man should boast. Um, but uh, um, they only agree in words uh, when their actual teaching contradicts that. And so uh, we dealt with things like um, transcend, and it's a hard word to say, transubstantiation. Uh, baptism was a big thing that kept coming up with the Catholics. They say you must be baptized, be saved. Um, we we also found it very helpful to bring up the rebirth because that is a crucial doctrine uh, related to salvation. And it is astonishing that many Catholics have barely even heard of the rebirth, let alone when they, you know, heard any truth about it. <laughs> um, even though Jesus said, you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, um, they have a very, they replace the doctrine of rebirth with uh, sprinkling. So there's a magical mystery power of the water that gets sprinkled on you, the waters of baptism. And, uh, uh, you know, I told one Catholic, you've you swapped the symbol with the reality. I turned him to Romans 6, and he had never seen that before, you know, baptized with in Christ's death, raised again in uh, his resurrection. And, uh, the, you know, that is the reality that matters. It's not the symbol that comes along later to confess that reality. Um, so those are all great opportunities. And uh, my hope... Uh, and I had a number, a few occasions to talk, invite people to follow up with us and uh, continue the discussion, if it's, even if it's just via, via email. But I would love to have coffee with someone and talk more about this or have them come to one of our Bible studies. And, uh, you know, Jeff has an st amazing story. He went out um, one time, I think it was with Campus Crusade, and shared the gospel, and on the spot, someone got saved uh, and is still walking with the Lord today. 
and that's wonderful. Um, more often, though, what I see is the Lord, you know, one person plants and another waters, and the Lord uses time, more time and more people working in, in the, their lives before they come to Christ. So I'm hoping to go beyond just art fair and and have some disciples join us uh, whom we can uh, help out. Uh, and uh, um, uh, we are very sad in what happened to Jansen. Uh, he was just fine yesterday, and uh, today, of course, you know, he's uh, in the hospital, and these are things that perplex us, but uh, we just know it's in the hands of a sovereign God, and I don't... We don't know why the the Lord allowed this to happen right during a very busy time of ministry, but we look for him to help. It's not the first time that ministry has encountered obstacles, and the Lord carries carries us through anyway. So, I would uh, thank you, Ben. Undoubtedly, you'll probably think of something you wanted to say, and you can share that this evening. Uh, but I delighted in that testimony. I was at the booth a couple of shifts and enjoyed uh, uh, interacting with people. We had some folks come by and um, mock. Um, I began my first shift by going to a number of our neighboring booths and engaging them in conversations and trying to turn uh, their thoughts to the gospel of Christ. Um, Catholics across the way is a, a group of six churches in the area. Um, we had the Republicans to our left as we sat in our booth, and they're fairly friendly folk. And uh, the uh, folks to the right of us were voters, not politicians, at that uh, left-wing group, although they claim to be nonpartisan. We saw that sort of thing, you know, claims, you know, X, but it's actually not X, uh, sad but um, and deceiving. Uh, I had uh, mentioned to you folks occasionally before that over the years I had ministered to a Jewish man named Daniel and uh, I hadn't seen him in a while uh, and lo and behold he popped up at our booth right when I was there my second shift and I got to speak with him for about two hours. Um, he is uh, not going to be easily convinced of the gospel. I first met him approximately 20 years ago on the Diag, and uh, I've I've interacted with him maybe four, five, six times. I can't remember now, but last few years he's been uh, absent. I haven't seen him, Um, but we were able to engage him in the gospel. And I had done some preparation, as you recall, in preaching about preaching that Jesus is the Christ, and that being especially uh, ideal to speak to a Jewish person about that. Well, guess what came out in my conversation with him? I really brought it, and uh, I was giving it to him because he needed to hear it. And um, there was a lot of, you know, trying to go on sidetracks and tangents and everything, but I've learned uh, in those kinds of conversations to keep keep things on the track that I want them to go on. And, um, and you know, at a couple of points, I used some quotations from the Lord that were more of his hard quotations. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And uh, hard words, but necessary words to call someone to repentance. And so you might pray for this uh, gentleman. He's a little bit older um, and needs the gospel. So 
Uh, I'll probably think of some other interactions to share with you, but uh, I, I just thought um, that was amazing because uh, we shouldn't be amazed, obviously. But I would prayed, Lord, send him. And God answered. And I said to Daniel, I called him by name right when he walked up to our booth, and he couldn't believe that we remembered him. I said, how many booths around here, Daniel, are going to remember you, you personally? We remember because we're concerned for your soul. And uh, there was one other person there who remembered Daniel, and that was uh, Rabbi Glenn. Uh, Rabbi, uh, is that right? Is it Glenn? What's his last name? Harris. Harris, that's right. That that's, makes sense, yes, Harris, yes. Uh, I was able to greet him as well. I saw him, uh, and he came up to the booth while Daniel was there and, uh, and said he'd like to chat with him as well. So it was gl- good to see Rabbi Glenn there from uh, Shema and ministering to Jewish people, uh, trying to minister to Jewish people, anybody really, there at the art fair. So that was a blessing. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we've had. Uh, we are... So grateful to be able to be ministers of the gospel of Christ, and uh, although we've experienced hard times with it sometimes, and mocking, and uh, people uh, uh, saying bad things about us, and all of that, but oh, how grateful we are that we could um, be there and be your servants. Help us, we pray, to uh, continue to not grow weary in well-doing, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 26, please, as we read our portion of Scripture, Acts chapter 26. The text of Scripture says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, this is King Agrippa, You are permitted to speak for yourself as they uh, attempt to, uh, what shall I say, discover what charges should be leveled against the man who is not guilty of anything. Uh, So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that According to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Now what is that hope of which he speaks? Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? That is the hope of which Paul is speaking. We have a certain expectation based on the promises of Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures that we are going to be raised from the dead, that death is not the end of everything. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Listen to that. If you want a summary of what the ministry of the gospel is, it's to open eyes that are blind, eyes that are in darkness, to turn people from the power of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sins, to receive an inheritance among those who are likewise saved by faith in Christ. As they say today, what's not to like about having all of that? And we offer that freely and people mock for that. Sad, isn't it? Now listen to this. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I remember in this pulpit stood uh, a missionary supported by our church named Pastor Wilfred Matham who preached on Acts 26, 19 and the, por- the portion that followed with great power. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. We have that in a recording. You can find it on the website somewhere. If you can't, let me know. We'll try to dig it up. He was not disobedient, but, verse 20, declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Anybody who says repentance has no place in the gospel is in conflict with the clear revelation of God's word. Listen to that again. He was to declare first in Damascus and in Jerusalem and all the region of Judea, then to the Gentiles, what? They should repent turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles." Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, and those who sat with them. And they had, when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed Caesar. I don't know about all the legalities of that, but uh, if I were them, I would have sat Paul down privately and said, hey, you want to retract that, uh, that appeal to Caesar? 
you don't need to appeal to Caesar. You're free. You're free to go. You haven't done anything wrong. Make a declaration to that extent and be done with the whole matter. But it didn't turn out that way. Have you noticed in your own life that as you become more mature in Christ and hopefully that you know, goes along with you becoming older, that the things of earth are a little dimmer than they were before? You get this idea that um, you, know, you remember back in the days when you wanted this certain thing and you saved up for it or whatever and you got it and you're all about accumulating material things and now it feels better to get rid of material things than it does to get them. In some ways, uh, yeah, the things of earth, the growing strangely dim. Well, as I look back at my uh, notes on preaching over the years, I have kept track of all the sermon series that I've done, and uh, I have had in my heart to, for some time, begin a series in the last book of the New Testament that I have not done an expositional series through, and that is the Gospel of Luke. If you would turn your Bibles, please, therefore, to Luke's Gospel in chapter 1. We'll take a crack at starting this today and see uh, what happens. Um, We were in Matthew together on Wednesday nights and some Sundays for over two years, and uh, I moved into the book of Acts uh, after that uh, for those sessions. In fact, we'll probably do some more in Acts this evening. A critical message that I shared on Wednesday night. If you haven't heard that message on uh, Acts chapter 2, 40 to 47, I really not only encourage but also exhort you to listen to that. I will be reviewing some of that material, Lord willing, tonight and then going on from there because we didn't get but about halfway through that uh, that message on uh, Wednesday night. But it is absolutely crucial for us as a church, uh, that material. This, no less important, but it's of a different nature. We're going to do an introduction to the Gospel of Luke this morning, and with the time that we have remaining, consider Luke's contribution to the Bible. Luke's uh, Gospel is a sizable portion of our Bibles. I just looked in my study Bible. It happens to be on my desk, and of course the study Bible has notes associated with it as well, so that makes the text a little longer. But just for an apples-to-apples kind of comparison, I looked at how many pages Luke takes up in that volume, and it's 59 pages. Luke also wrote Acts, and again, over 50 pages uh, in my copy of Scripture on my desk, and so he's responsible for about 27% of the New Testament, if you ever realize that. The Apostle Paul, depending on whether he wrote Hebrews or not, either 23 or also 27% of the Bible. So between Luke and, or the New Testament, between Luke and Paul, you have over 50% of the Scripture ascribed to them, they being used by God to write that. John himself, with the Gospel and Revelation and his little letters, about 20% of the New Testament. John presents Jesus as the Son of God, really focusing on his deity. Mark focuses on Jesus as a servant of God. Matthew, of course, you know what Matthew's focus is on Jesus? King, that's right, Anne, very good. Uh, the genealogy at the beginning kind of gives it away that he's the son of Abraham, the son of David, and uh, his royal lineage is given. He is the king. Theologians sometimes, in a similar manner, summarize Luke's gospel as the gospel of the son of man. And while these summary statements are a little clipped, 
a little bit too reductionistic for my liking, they are useful in that they remind us of the multifaceted person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is king. He is not only king, but prophet and priest. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. He is a servant of God. Uh, he came to give his life as a sacrifice. He said, I didn't come to, to uh, be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And so these are helpful summaries, and they have value to them. But he's also shepherd and lion and many other things as well. So we can't uh, really exhaust uh, his person or work with just a few titles. And maybe one day we should just do a message on who he is in terms of his titles and, and uh, get to know him a little bit better that way. We begin, however, with uh, the question, who was Luke? Uh, his name only appears in three texts in the Bible, and I've put them in boldface print in the notes there for you on your first or second page in Colossians and 2 Timothy and in Philemon. His name does not appear in the gospel by his name, um, but we believe that he was the author of the gospel of Luke because we can figure out kind of by a process of elimination that using the book of Luke and Acts, and especially the portions in Acts where it shows that he is with the Apostle Paul, and we call those the we passages, not W-E-E, -E, like small, like they say in Northern Ireland. One of my friends there always says a we little this and a we that and all of that, but it's W-E. It's the, the we in which he, Luke is the author, is including himself in it. And with Paul's companions that are listed in Scripture, you can kind of piece together things from other portions and figure out that this was Luke. The early church attributed the gospel to Luke as well, and there's no reason for us to doubt that attribution. In Colossians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul mentions Luke as the beloved physician. And so often Luke is called Dr. Luke, not Ph.D. doctor, but M.D. doctor in the sense that they had back then. He was uh, a healer of physical disease, as in this portion in Colossians, or with Jesus who healed people's illnesses. Uh, we call Jesus sometimes the great physician, like Luke was a physician. Um, but also Jesus came to heal spiritual sickness. I'll just uh, allude to one verse here in that regard, and that's in Mark chapter 2, verse number 17. Um, the Pharisees and scribes were complaining that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And uh, they had a disease. They didn't have a disease of, of alcoholism or a disease uh, of a bacteria or a virus. They had a disease of sin. And when Jesus heard their complaints, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. To me, my friends, I, still, I go back to this often in my thinking, we spend a tremendous amount of money in the United States on medicine, pain medicine, uh, psychotropic medicine, doctor visits, health insurance, deductibles, co-pays, billions and billions and billions of dollars. And all that we believe is, uh, not all of it, but some of it we believe is helpful, much of it's useful, can be helpful. 
And you'll go to a doctor and you'll pay the doctor the ridiculous fee that sometimes is charged, but people won't come to hear about their soul and the spiritual need that they have. Um, I wish people would call to make an appointment like they do with their doctor to see their pastor, uh, to see somebody else in the church that could be of help to them. People are ill with diseases like lack of forgiveness and bitterness. They're ill with anger and short tempers and rudeness and lack of love and not living at peace with one another and all kinds of things. And they're ill with not asking God to forgive them their sins. They're ill with lack of repentance. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, came to seek and save that which is lost and to heal our spiritual disease of sin. Luke was the author of the gospel. He was a beloved physician. He was also a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. Uh, we see that in a number of portions of Scripture. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse uh, 11, the Bible says this, uh, Paul writing in prison, Only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Everybody else has left. Even Demas left, forsaking Paul, having loved this present world. Crescens had to leave. Titus had to leave. Only Luke was there with him, his beloved physician, who probably helped him out in the lack that he suffered as he was there in the prison in Rome. Paul was a co, uh, or sorry, Luke was a not only travel companion, but also a co-worker of the Apostle Paul in the gospel. Uh, we see in, in Philemon chapter 1, the only chapter there, uh, and he says uh, about Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow laborers. And this is an important point because as such, he would have had regular contact with the progress of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire and Paul's ministry in the first decades of the church. He would have had information directly from the Apostle Paul. I mean, he probably spent many hours with Paul, traveling on boats and by, on foot and all of that, in, in prison, in Caesarea, in Rome, uh, having contact with him. And so Paul, who heard the gospel directly from Jesus Christ, taught it in Arabia. Uh, Luke would have had contact with him. And at least for the portion of his writings called the book of Acts, he would have had direct first-hand knowledge of all of that. Luke was also a first-rate historian. Don't let anybody tell you that the Bible is a book of fables or, or throw you for a loop that way. We had that happen this week at the art fair. This, <laughs> this happens all the time. I'll get to it in a moment again. But Luke knew, knew, personally knew, many of the primary sources of his material. Okay, He wasn't writing like you know halfway across the world of rumors that he had heard. He was there. He had knowledge of the early Christian faith directly from those who were first-generation recipients of it. For example, Acts... Uh, uh, Acts 6 tells us that there were a number of deacons selected in the church. One of them was Philip. He, Luke stayed with Philip and Paul later on in the book of Acts in chapter 21, I think it is. He knew him personally. 
He had an attention to detail as a physician evidenced in the text that he gives with time markers and narrative details that other gospel writers did not include. And all of this supports the claim that Luke was a great historian. If you look at others, they'll, they'll tell you the same thing out uh, in the land of commentaries and, and, and the evaluations of the gospel of Luke. He was also an acquaintance with a man who is named Theophilus. Let me read the text. Inasmuch as many has, have taken in hand uh, to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. I just reflect back on those primary sources. And you look at chapter 1 and 2. How did he know about all of this stuff? Can you imagine Luke having the opportunity to interview Mary, Peter, Paul, Mark, Matthew, other apostles that he might have met? Uh, John the Baptist's parents, who may still have been alive, who knows what he had opportunities to, to interact with these folks. He was an acquaintance of this man, in addition to all of that name, Theophilus. Theophilus means one who loves God or a friend of God or one loved by God. It's built on the roots theoph or theos, God, and, and philos, phileo, to love or to befriend and the modifier here, most excellent Theophilus, we see that in Acts 23, where one of the governors of Rome was called most excellent Felix in a letter. So the most excellent title, Cratiste, seems to indicate that he was some kind of Roman official. And perhaps we're knowing him as Theophilus by his Christian name, but he was the governing ruler of some portion of the Roman Empire. Luke somehow had contact with him from all of his travels, possibly treated him as a medical patient, and wanted to help his soul, not just his body. Theophilus, it says, had been instructed in the faith. You see that at the end of verse 4, uh, those things in which you were instructed at some time in the past that had happened, but he needed more information to support his faith. Luke also admits freely that he was not an eyewitness of all the events that occur that he has recorded in his book. He says, there were, however, eyewitnesses and ministers who delivered those things to us. That's verse number two. So he was documenting what was passed down from the eyewitnesses of the Lord. Now, what is Luke's purpose? What is Luke's purpose in writing? Well, he's writing specifically to one person. Theophilus. However, Theophilus becomes a much bigger personage than just an individual in this manner. Luke was writing to evangelize or at least buttress the uncertain or shaky faith of his reader by establishing the truth of the things concerning Jesus Christ. In our modern parlance, we would say that Luke was an apologist he was writing an apologetic, that is, from the official kind of root meaning of that word apology is not to say sorry, it's to make a defense. That's what that word really means. 
Okay, there's a, a lot of people in Christian circles are involved in apologetics, defending and proclaiming the Christian gospel. They are doing 1 Peter 3, uh, 15 kind of work, giving a reason for the hope that lies within us, saying that we're not just, as we said with uh, our friend Daniel at the, at the uh, art fair, we're not just advocating some blind leap of faith, you know, into the darkness and, you know, God will pick us up uh, out of that big gap where we don't know where we're going. We don't believe that that is the case. We are believing with our minds. We believe with rational thoughts and reasonable thinking. He's writing to defend the faith and buttress the faith and give information. We don't ever ask somebody to believe something they don't know or at least in some measure understand. And we're not saying that you're going to understand everything about the gospel. You're not going to understand everything about the Trinity, everything about Christian doctrine, because the Bible doesn't require you to understand everything in order to be saved. What is required for a man to be saved? To call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. With as simple a faith as you have, with as perhaps ignorant of faith as you have, as I did when I was a boy, I just believed what I learned from the Bible. And I grew in that, and I'm grateful for that growth. But Luke is giving further reasons for an adult person who is really thinking about the things of God, giving reasons why he believes the Christian faith in the person and work of Christ. So let me say it this way practically. This book, Luke, is for you. If you've ever had doubts or your faith has ever been shaken, or it is perhaps even right now at this moment, God knew that there would be numerous Theophiluses out there in the world, people who think they know God or have a sense that it's important to get to know God, to know Jesus, but they're uncertain about the facts. In the quiet moments of their life, they say, look, I've seen these Christian people. They're fully convinced of their beliefs. They behave differently than the rest of the world does. But is it really true? I mean, can I be sure that that this stuff is real and it's not just made up pretend. I mean, there's so much pretend stuff out there in the media and movies and, and uh, you know, is this just another one of those religious fantasies? Perhaps you've been confused by the attacks and the denials that you hear in the world. You've, you've been undermined by the doctrines of the devil which are taught in, relig- in schools and uh, both religious and secular schools today, philosophies and the popular media, rumors and all of that, the devil bringing in new systems of false theology, whether it's evolution or whether it's transgenderism today, the latest one, or whatever it is, bringing in all this confusion to get people turned around and, and off on this path and that path instead of looking at their God who created them. Perhaps one or more problems in theology have troubled you and you're holding back from believing fully the problem of punishment of evil or the problem of evil to begin with, the problem of moral or natural evil. How do you handle all of that? In such situations, it's helpful for you to go back to the beginning, back to the basics and ask, what are the facts? And what do I know for certain? God knew that there were going to be people who were not going to just say that, Take my word for it, you know, friend. You need to be saved. Some people do that. You know, they they take 
that from a, a trusted advisor, a friend, the gospel. But others are more skeptical. We have the world's full of skeptics today, philosophical skeptics and just practical skeptics. And this book is to fill in the gaps of your knowledge and information. And, and I want to help you with it in our series here. Luke's purpose was to put together an orderly, perhaps not 100% chronological, but orderly account of the events and the meaning surrounding the life of Jesus. Many others had made efforts in this area. He said in verse 1, as much as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things. Some of them were inspired accounts. Matthew and Mark were done probably by this time. John was most likely written later. Uh, many others perhaps were written summaries, commentaries by individuals who were burdened to write and explain what they knew about the gospel, maybe mixed with legend or errors. We see some of that in the, in the history of writings, probably not so much by this time, but certainly after this time uh, with pseudonymous writings and things like that. Without disparaging any of those efforts, Luke says, it seemed good to me also. And obviously it was good because God had prepared him uniquely for that task. To undertake a similar project as some of those others, but with more uh, detail and with more accuracy. And according to Luke's plan as an author, he was writing here in Luke the first of a two-volume series that would deal with what Jesus began to do and teach in Luke and then what he would continue to accomplish through the apostles by means of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see that connection in the first verses in the book of Acts. Acts 1, 1 and 2 and so on say, look, the first account I began, O Theophilus, to tell you what Jesus began to do and teach, but now we're going to continue and talk about the work of the Spirit through the apostles, and that unfolds then in the rest of the book. Heading 3, Roman numeral 3 in my notes, I want to just mention Luke's view of his material the view that he had of his material. First of all, he viewed his material as open source material, if I could say it that way. I mean to say that it was open to many people. Many others had decided to write accounts about this. As the Apostle Paul said in Acts 26, look, King, this wasn't done in a corner. This is public, okay? Jesus died publicly in the most public possible way that Rome could figure out how to do, outside of a major city, on a hill, on a cross between two thieves. He died there in that place. Not, no, no, no hidden information here. Now, most of the other sources are lost, but perhaps there were some of those that were Luke's source material. But the truth about Jesus is not closed, esoteric knowledge. It's not secret. It's open source knowledge in Computer software, we have uh, that term open source. And it means that the code that you write in order to make a program work on the computer is open and available for everybody to see. So, for instance, if you have a program like a communication uh, software uh, it's, and you want to prove that it's secure, the best way to do that is to open source all of the code that you've written instead of making it proprietary and hiding it open source it so that people can examine it. We'll go through it and see if it's got back doors, hidden, you know, trap doors in it or whatever. Many pieces of security software aren't that way. They're not open source. Operating systems are not open source. How do you know there's not a back door in your computer? 
You trust there's not. But if it was open sourced and everybody could evaluate that and look at it, then you could tell. Open source. The gospel is not like, here, come in this little corner and let me tell you a secret in the dark. The gospel is proclaimed openly to the world. Secondly, Luke looked at his material as a narrative. See that in verse number one. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things. And I say this because although the Bible, and Luke in particular, documents such things as miraculous events. Now, just be honest. In your natural mind, which if you're a believer here today, you've escaped your natural mind, your purely natural mind, but in your natural mind, you would say that miraculous events strain credulity. You know what that means? That means it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that Jesus could make enough bread and fish to feed 5,000 people, or it's hard to believe that he could walk upon the water, or it's hard to believe that he could raise a man from the dead like he did for the widow of Nain, her son who had died. Yes, I, I understand. But when your mind is renewed and you, you meet God and you understand what God can do, who he is and the power that he has, and that he created all things from the beginning, a few little miracles here and there don't bother your faith or your credulity whatsoever. But in the midst of that, these exist, all these kind of, you know, hard-to-believe events exist in the context of a sequence of other events that were undeniably natural and real. Luke and the others before him wrote narrations of those things. Luke looks at his writings as a narrative. It is not pretend. It is non-fiction. They are narrativable events, if you understand. They're historical events, in other words. Thirdly, Luke saw his material as a fulfillment. Look at the end of verse 1. Many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Now, in the simplest analysis, the word fulfill basically means those things that happened among us. Those things that happened, they really did happen, but they did not just happen to happen. Does that make sense? They didn't just happen to happen. They were not happenstance. They were part of God's plan and connected back to a rich history in the Hebrew scriptures of Jewish prophecy, of which these events that he's writing about became the fulfillments. The Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament are the root of what Luke writes about in his book. Um, I'm on uh, letter C now, which is after two letter Bs, I notice, so you'll forgive me for that typo. Luke looks at his writings as actual history. There's an order to it. It consists of real events. There were, as he says, eyewitnesses to these events. And not only one or two eyewitnesses, but dozens and even hundreds of eyewitnesses, as we see from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, my friend who I was witnessing to at the art fair said, what about, what about witnesses? We want to we see things that, that uh, witnesses saw. What, you know, I said, well, here, go to 1 Corinthians 15. I got over 500 witnesses for you. Is that good enough? Is that good enough? No, 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 it's, it's not. Um, the apostles were eyewitnesses, not Luke himself until he 
participated in the events and acts, but eyewitnesses are a standard of reasonable proof. Luke is a history book covering a key period of just over three decades in world history, especially Jewish history, but also Christian history, and that had a great impact on the rest of the world. Let me mention, too, this, this idea that I've, I've shared as well this past week, but also in time past. What a lot of times people like to do today is they like to take the Bible and throw it into the trash, and then they say, what other evidence do you have? And I try to say to people, look, forget, forget we had the Bible now all this time. Let's just suppose that you went to Egypt and you dug this up out of the sands there 50 feet down, and you found this volume written in Greek and Hebrew that had all this amazing information in it. Would that be good enough for you? Well, probably not. But it just illustrates the fact that this is evidence. You can't take all of this evidence and throw it into the trash can and then say, where's your evidence? That's not only unfair, it's illogical. This is evidence. Let the Christians testify in their own defense. You can't just throw out there, a man has a right to testify in his own defense, doesn't he? Well, so do Christians. And they don't get special bad treatment just because they're Christians. We have a lot of evidence here. And the fact that it was dug up a long time ago doesn't mean it's any less valuable than if you dug it up yesterday in the sands of Egypt and were able to claim some humongous archaeological discovery. This is evidence. It's actual history. Luke obviously thinks that this is worthy of extended and careful treatment. I suspect that he must have spent hundreds of hours researching and putting together his book at a time when written communication was difficult and expensive. I mean, today, yeah, you can type this out on your computer, print it, put it on a Xerox machine, uh, put it up on Amazon and sell it as a Kindle book, and it's cheap, free almost, but not then. But Luke had finances. He had the ability to compile and write and rewrite and and get editorial and secretarial help to write and copy and then send via courier. Can you imagine? That's why God makes some people uh, have special abilities of their mind and special abilities with their pocketbook so that they can do things that people who don't have that can't do. You with me? Yes. So he had the ability to do that as a physician, well-trained, uh, well able to uh, manage the kind of project that had to be managed. Also, he looked at the work, the, his work here as the result of careful research. He says, I had a perfect understanding of all things. What this means is that he had taken careful, accurate note of everything that he could pick up about, about these events, and now he was recounting that in an organized fashion. If you imagine with me Luke as he's traveling with Paul, he, he's, he picked up some things along his early life. He travels with Paul. He meets Peter. He meets Philip. He picks up all these little data points, perhaps meets some of the ones involved in the early birth narrative of Christ or those who were there in the hills of Judea and gets information from them, and he starts putting it all together. And he's getting all kinds of information from all sources and all different orders. And what he does is he says, I'm going to now take that, and I'm going to unscramble it, and I'm going to write it in an orderly account just for you, Theophilus, because I want you to know the certainty of the things of which you've been instructed. So we'd have a more ordered arrangement than what he received that order in. We also see, finally, that Luke considers his material as utterly certain 
as reliable, as dependable, and as truthful. And therefore, what he says partakes of divine authority. The Gospel of Luke is God's word. In Luke chapter 10, verse number 7, Luke records Jesus saying this, the worker is worthy of his wages. In second, or sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul quotes Deuteronomy about the ox not being muzzled when he treads out the grain, and he quotes that portion from Luke chapter 10, the worker is worthy of his wages. Those words do not occur anywhere else in the Bible but in Luke, and Paul calls those words scripture. This is holy writ. Inspired, superintended by God, stamped with approval of the Apostle Paul. It's part of Scripture and has that approval. It's part of what the Lord Jesus wanted to communicate to his church. One more note as we close our study here in the first verses of Luke. Luke has a number of uh, unique things to it that the other Gospels don't. It's not merely another redundant report of the life of Christ. It has several unique elements that add much to our understanding of his ministry. Just the first two chapters alone are worth the price of admission. I mean, the, the birth narrative, you see things there you, had, you didn't see anywhere else. You see Zacharias and Elizabeth. You see Mary, their Benedictus, the Magnificat. You see the story, again, of the, uh, of the shepherds and that special uh, portion there. Uh, you have the circumcision of Christ. Um, Zacharias, prophecy, circumcision of John the Baptist, all interesting things that we don't find in the other Gospels. I give a quote here from Britannica talking about it contains the census of Caesar Augustus, the journey to Bethlehem, Jesus' birth, the adoration of the shepherds, his circumcisions, his circumcision, the words of Simeon. Remember Anna in chapter 2, 36 to 38. It talks about Jesus at age 12 in the temple talking with the doctors of the law. It's the only gospel to give an account of the ascension. And in fact, there are 17 parables in Luke that don't appear anywhere else in your Bible. We went over all those parables some time ago. But if we didn't have Luke, we would be missing a whole lot of the Bible. Luke wrote under the influence and superintendence of the Holy Spirit of God. What he wrote is true, without error. It's authoritative. But it's meant to strengthen the faith of Christians to encourage the nascent faith of perhaps not quite Christians so they can have a stable, certain foundation upon which to build their faith. So perhaps you have questions just like Theophilus had. God already knew you were going to have those questions. And he set a man, a doctor, to spend hundreds of hours researching and gathering information in order to write a volume to answer your questions about Christianity. You should read it. It's good reading. And it will help you to strengthen your faith in the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we close this afternoon with a prayer that you will take Luke's writing and do with it in our lives what you did in the life of Theophilus. We pray that he did come to faith, strong faith in the Lord, and that Luke had the joy of hearing that result of his ministry in writing. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.